Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life, an unscripted, free-flow, no-axe-to-grind podcast that explores the often murky world of the overseas private security contracting world and the private contracting world as a whole. From Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. My guest for this episode is a very special guest, at least I think he's a very special guest. Uh, Not that my guests in the past haven't been special, but uh, Mr. Morgan Lorette, he, uh, I think I said that right. I hope I got it right. Lorette, he'll, yes. he'll correct me here in a moment <laughs> if I didn't. Uh, former member of the United States Army, uh, former private security contractor overseas, um, and author of the book, Welcome to Blackwater. Uh, so with that said, uh, and not stepping and misstepping and getting anything wrong, uh, let me introduce Morgan Lorette. Morgan, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I, I appreciate it. You, you, you said my name spectacularly. So <laughs> Did I? <laughs> yeah, it's either it's like like cigarette or Corvette. So it's perfect. L-E-R-E-T-T-E. Excellent. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so for everybody that's listening, uh, this is an audio podcast, but we are also doing it via uh, Zoom. We sometimes do it Skype and other times it's been phone calls. I mean, the mishmash of, of technology going on for this stuff. But uh, this might go out in video at some point in the future. We just, uh, Morgan and I discussed that. So for people that are listening, um, there's been some talk and feedback and people want to start seeing stuff. So Morgan's down with it. So I'm just saying, if you're listening to this and you want to see it as well, uh, you might just get your wish. Um, so with that said, Morgan, um, can you tell the folks that are listening who maybe don't know who you are, uh, who you are, what you are, what you did, your background, history, whatever, uh, prior to becoming a contractor. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I started off in the Air Force. Uh, I, I'm not one that puts a whole lot of thought into my decisions. And my grandfather was a World War II veteran in the Army. And he said, hey, if you're going to join the military, go in the Air Force. They have way better food. I thought, well, heck, you may as well. Uh, so I, I joined the Air Force in 1999. And uh, ended up getting, well, it was the Air National Guard. So I got activated for two years after September 11th. And that's when uh, the Iraq war was kicking off. So kind of my claim to fame back then was, was we were the first Air Force security forces in Iraq in 2003 at Talil Air Base. And, and that's the air base where uh, Jessica Lynch was rescued from. Uh, we didn't know it at the time. We had no idea uh, that any of that was going on because it's not like we had the news at our fingertips like you do now. Um, so I did Air Force Security Forces, and then I had a buddy that went to go work for Blackwater, and he said, Morgan, you should come work for Blackwater. And I said, absolutely not. And that sounds ridiculous. This was after uh, the four contractors had been hanged uh, on the bridge in Fallujah after the ambush. And apparently, they had just gotten the big State Department contract over in Iraq, and they were looking for people, and they walked in the room, and they said, hey, anybody that's got somebody that's good in the pocket? give us their phone number. We'll call them. So I just got a random phone call on like a Monday morning uh, from a gentleman from Blackwater that said, Hey, you want to come over to Blackwater? We'll train you for three weeks. And then after that, we'll send you to Iraq, $550 a day and uh, 10% bonus at the end. And I said, well, sign me up. Why the heck not? Um, So I I worked for Blackwater from 04, 05, got boots on the ground in August of 04. And then ended up leaving in, like, I think it was like December 31st of, uh, of 2005 and came home, uh, decided I was going to get my, my degree 
And then once I started going to college and realized that I was going broke, that all that contractor money was just drying up. And, you know, my, my now ex-wife was spending it like, like she was a drunk sailor. Um, I, I joined the Army ROTC and uh, went back in as, a, as an Army officer. Uh, they sent me straight back to Iraq in 2009, 2010. Uh, same place as I was uh, working in Blackwater, actually, but uh, for about a third of the pay. So that was that was like a nice kick in the teeth. Um, so that's kind of in, in a nutshell. That's that's what I did uh, for my service and my my overseas service. Got to watch kind of go the war go all the way from uh, the ground offensive to holy crap, it's going really really bad. No four oh five, and then back in nine and ten when we were uh, drawing down, and it was it was actually a pretty uh, calm time. Wow. Okay. So, um, yeah. And, and I think I said army, you, <laughs> I knew you were air force, man. My bad. I'm so no sorry. worries. Um, so you joined the air force, you said in 1999. Yeah. I graduated from high school in 1999, decided I didn't want to work construction. And I said, well, I may as well go into the military. Right. So, uh, I joined up and, and that was back when it was all about college money and, and nothing bad is going to happen. You know, before that, there was Somalia, but that was pretty small. And then uh, nothing really big since, um, since Desert Storm. So going overseas was never even something that occurred to me when I joined up. But um, 2001 happened, and, and it was pretty calm. We had a couple of deployments. I went to Oman, um, which, was, which was really nice. We had our own little beach. You know, we got to have two beers a day. It was a very Air Force deployment. And it was 90 days. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so long. It's terrible. Um, and then I, I got done with that. And they needed some people that were going to go over to Jordan for the pending ground offensive. And I volunteered for that because why the heck not? And went to Jordan. Uh, we were doing some, like, spooky operation stuff in, in Jordan before the ground offensive, sending – um, like the Predator drones out looking for missile sites. And then uh, the international community said, Jordan, you can't be nice to the Americans. So they booted us out of there, sent me to Kuwait for about 15 days, and then the ground offensive kicked off, and we started the air base uh, at, at Talil. Okay, Talil. Uh, you did say Talil, right? Yes, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's right. Th- I thought I heard that when you mentioned it earlier. I'm thinking, oh, my God, some of us have been there. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. So, and you mentioned uh, Jessica Lynch. So, you, so that was the air base where that whole thing started and ended? Yeah. So, uh, Talil is just south of Al Nazaria. So, that's where they were ambushed. Uh, I'd heard about the ambush before we went in, uh, but I didn't know what the heck was going on. I just saw that some C-130s were coming in. Uh, they they opened up. They put in those little bird helicopters. They kind of drug them out, and then they put the the tops on them, and away they went. And huh. then they brought her back to our combat army surgical hospital, so our cash. And I didn't have a clue about it until I got home, like a month and a half later. And everybody was like, "Oh, well, that's where everything happened." And I'm well, not for me. I just sat there watching planes land, telling people, "Don't drive, don't drive there. There's a plane landing. Come on, guys." Oh, that's it's that's funny and interesting because you know that's typically the way it works, right? Unless unless you're one of the guys that that's part of that actual mission that's going down. Um, most people, even if you're working around there, you you really don't know about it. Um, at least you're not supposed to. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, I, it, I mean, in '03 we we were in full mop gear. 
Um, so every, every day it was like, Saddam's going to gas us today. Saddam's going to gas us. And then you hear the sirens go off and you stick your stuff on. And then after like three days, you're like, if Saddam's going to gas us, just bring it on. Like this stuff sucks. <laughs> so, so it, when I talked to people, they uh, went in and after Oh four, I was like, Oh, you guys missed out on all the mop gear where you're just sweating yourself stupid all day, every day. It, but so the perk of the mop gear was, you know, we didn't have any chow halls. We just had MREs. Um, so with the mop gear on, you could fart the most violent, stinky fart and all that charcoal within that mop gear would absorb it and you would never even smell your own farts. It was spectacular <laughs> until at nighttime when you took it off and you blasted one and you're like waking yourself up with the stink. Oh, that, that's awesome, <laughs> man. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's interesting. I do remember, um, that what you're talking about, uh, the early part of that, uh, that whole thing, uh, much like the first one, which, uh, I, unfortunately the second, the second, what we call the second Gulf war, the time frame you're talking about with all that stuff. I mean, I watched a lot of it on the news, like a lot of us did. Uh, the first one I had, and I wish I had those VHS tapes from back then. I had the entire thing from, from, you know, the, Actually, I think it was like 96 hours. I had it all. Maybe it was 100 and something hours. I mean, from start to finish uh, on VHS. And I was going really? to keep it. And I don't remember what happened. But, you know, anyway, I ended up losing them. But uh, what you're talking about, I remember those, you know, watching those CNN reporters and some of the others that were out there in the hotels giving us the videos and the snapshots and, and watching the explosions and everything else. And, uh you know, uh, yeah, I think at one point you're right. What you said, you know, guys are like, you know, come on, man. We're getting tired of getting in and out of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then they say run to the bunker and you're like, how are you supposed to run with this stuff on? It's like, you're <laughs> <laughs> so finally it was like, yeah, man, if, 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 if it's coming, it's coming. Um, right. I do remember the, the one of the, the funniest part of the ground offensive is you have all your mop gear on and you stink and you haven't been able to take a shower and you're, you know, you're wiping your balls with, with, with baby wipes. And that's about the closest you can do. And uh, they, they only gave us two liters of water a day because the ground offensive was moving so fast that to get the logistics up to where the ground offensive was, uh, it, it just couldn't keep up. So they would bring in pallets of water and be like, there's your one water bottle. Drink it slowly. Uh, but wow. me and my buddy, we, we saved up water for like five days, just like a little bit at a time to where we had like a nice big bottle of water. And I was like, okay, let's do this. Let's go wash our hair. So I grabbed like this Pert Plus out of our tent. We go out there. He pours a little water on my head. I pour a little water on his. And then we, we like scrub our hair. And it, it's like a Vidal Sassoon. Like I felt so sexy. It was like Vidal Sassoon commercial. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh, it feels so good. And like the bubbles are dripping down my face with just dirt pouring off of me. And I got my mop gear on, but it's down like past my, my uh, waistline. So it's like getting on my chest. And I was like, God, I'm like the sexiest woman ever. And then uh, we, we get done. We like dry off, go into our tent and everybody's sitting in the tent and they just stop like dead in their tracks. And they look up and they go, what smells good? What smells good? And I was like, we washed our hair and they're like, Oh, you didn't tell us you guys were going to wash your hair. Like it was, it was like the dumbest thing ever, but it, it just felt so nice after like 20 days of being in the grime and dust storms. It was, oh, Oh yeah. So pretty. Um, yeah. I'll bet. And, and uh, that's something that uh, some 
arguably a lot of guys, you know, can identify with, but uh, a lot of people don't understand. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I remember um, as a contractor, in fact, it was on my first contract getting issued that and other stuff too. And uh, one of the big arguments, you know, <clears throat> they, they wanted us to have that within reach. And, uh, and, I, and I won't go into the whole long spiel about it, but I was very belligerent about the whole thing because it's like, you know, look, man, here's the deal. Okay. If it's a gas or a chemical, depending on the chemical or the gas, we might be okay. Okay. If we get this stuff on, if we get alerted in time, but what are you going to do when all this filtration stuff runs out? Do we got somewhere to go? Do we got extra filters? Do we got extra this, that? No, come on, man. This is a wartime <laughs> setting. I said, do you want to prolong the inevitable? Anyway, long story short, I refused to put that stuff on. I said, if I'm going to die, I'd rather just get it over with. Oh I'm yeah, sure. no. Well, and, and uh, that's I was telling people like you know the first few times you get mortared, you're like ah oh, run to the bunker, and then after like four days you're like ah oh, maybe I'll grab my flak vest and put it yeah. over me while I sleep, and then after like two weeks you're like, bah, whatever, dude. Like if right? they hit me, they're gonna hit me. It doesn't matter if I'm here, if I'm running butt naked to a bunker. Like it's it's just gonna happen, and you just. It's, it, it's like a convenience thing. As crazy as that sounds to people that haven't been overseas, it's like it, it's so inconvenient to get my sorry carcass up, put shoes on, try to run outside, and then chain smoke cigarettes for half an hour and then try to go back to sleep. Like I'd rather, I'd rather just lay down and, and hope for the best. Well, yeah, and, and, it, and you almost develop, uh, I'm not sure the right term, but you almost de uh, develop some sort of a uh, – devil may care blase attitude about it at, at some point because it just it's happened so much and it's not that you're not con it's not that we want to die nobody wants to die you know but it's like like you said i mean be between the the inconvenience thing and the fact that with rare exceptions i mean there are exceptions but with rare exceptions those sorts of things aren't necessarily going to keep you from getting hurt or dead well, and, and there's nothing to say that you're not running face first into where that next one's going to blow up anyway. <laughs> right. I mean, they're, they're already close enough to where you're hearing them. So they're, they're impacting. Right. I don't, like, so yeah, it was, it, when I first got back over to uh, Iraq with Blackwater, uh, there was a state department guy that was like in the shower and he's sitting there, you know, scrubbing his bean bag. And the next thing you know, a rocket comes over a wall, like a 20 foot T wall and hits his trailer and kills him. And it's like, it's just luck. Like wow. he didn't have to take a shower right that second. Um, right. In, in for me, like I'm, if I'm sitting on the toilet and that's when the mortars hit, then, you know, that's, that's just my time, you know, right. Just don't tell anybody I was on the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> tell him I was out there gallantly and yeah. fighting. <laughs> I went fighting. <laughs> heroically saving the Iraqi children. <laughs> right. Oh man. Well, yeah. And I remember though, I remember, you know, as time goes on, those sorts of things, you, you don't even think about them anymore, but you know, they become less and less concerned. But I remember, we, I really distinctly remember those thoughts about going in what we will call the sandy cans and uh, thinking, you know, kind of like, you know, it's like, you know, as you're taking everything off and getting and trying to do your business, it's like, man, what happens if, you know, you know, you go through those things and it's like, and eventually you're just like, what can you do, man? I got to, <laughs> you know, yeah. you just forget about it. You move on. Um, but uh, so, okay. So let's move. Uh, so now you've got a book out. It's titled Welcome to Blackwater. And, it, and, it, and uh, for lack of a better term, and you can clarify a lot 
of this better than I can, but it basically details uh, what would be your memoirs, um, your experience while you were a contractor in the early days of the second Gulf war um, as a contractor. Um, so let's pick up from there. Uh, so how does this thing start? Yeah, well, it starts off with uh, with the word "fuck." Like literally, the first the first word of the book is "fuck," because um, like you got to set the tone. Um, but I I didn't tell anybody I worked for Blackwater for over a decade almost uh, because it, there there was such negative connotations with uh, being associated with them. Uh, but but you would hear one of two things. Eric Prince would say. Blackwater was the savior of Iraq and, and they're all warrior patriots and they deserve the best. And then on the opposite side, it was like, oh, all those guys were war criminals and they should all be prosecuted and in jail. The fact that you're not in jail, like, you know, burns their ass for some reason. And I, I just got tired of hearing, hearing like both sides of, of the equation being bifurcated so far mm. that I said, I'm going to, I'm going to write a book about it. I'm going to write a boots on the ground time to, to tell the, the story about how, yes, we were a band of brothers. We did some amazing stuff over there. We did some great things for the country. Uh, but at the same time, we were not always the best thing for, for the overall war effort because mm -hmm. we didn't have the same rules of engagement. So I just, I wanted to pretty much do like, you know, strikes and balls. Like I'll, I'll tell you exactly what happened. You guys can choose whether or not uh, we were a value add or, 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 ultimately not helpful for the war effort. Um, so, so that's where it came from. Plus it was just the funniest 18 months of my life. Hmm. Uh, so I got there in August 04. Um, <laughs> the people that were running Blackwater had gotten there like literally four weeks ahead of me. And they're like, okay, here's how you do everything. And you're like, you just got here too. What do you mean? <laughs> this is how you do stuff. Um, and then they gave us these GPSs that didn't even have, um, they didn't have a map on them because, because Iraq didn't have, or Baghdad didn't have a map in the GPS. So there were those old like triangle ones mm. and they were like, okay, so every time you go on a run, uh, take this with you and then we'll have all these squiggly lines showing where we should go. <clears throat> and that was it. Like, that's how we operated. You'd pull up Google earth and you'd be like, I think it's that building right there. <laughs> And based on what I'm seeing, we can take this route or this route, you know, your primary, secondary, tertiary, stay away from Haifa street or else you're going to get your brains blown out. And we were under strict orders that, um, you, you move the, the convoy moves. You could have anybody from the ambassador to Iraq, uh, to like low level diplomats. And your job was to get them from one place to the next. Mm. So, so that's what we did. And, um, if, if you got to a point that you couldn't move, you know, you started throwing water bottles at cars and you started you bumping into cars and you started smashing into cars. Uh, but on the opposite side of it, we protected uh, the regime crimes liaison team. So we were running evidence to all these local courts uh, for the regime that was being tried for like the, the, um, the onfall province up in Kurdistan. So essentially where, Chemical Ali gassed the Kurds and, and they systematically went through and, and killed just villages and villages of people. Um, so we, we did a lot of good, uh, but, but we also, I, we didn't have the same rules and we didn't have what I would call adult supervision. Yeah. And the only thing that mattered was that you got the mission done. And once you, once you got the mission done, you'd go back, uh, head to the palace pool, 
crack open a beer and just get wasted. And then you do it over and over and over. And that's really how the book starts. It's like we go out on a run. Uh, I shot a tire out of a car. And then after that, uh, like went and took a shower, grabbed a bunch of beer. And then we went to the pool and just started getting drunk. And I call it the combat mullet. It was like, you know, business in the front and party in the back. Uh, that, that's how it was every day was the combat mullet. It was business during the day. And then we just partied every night. So for the folks that are listening, because, you know, the, the images it conjures up in, in my mind when, when you're talking like that is uh, there's plenty of it out there, plenty of material. But, for example, like um, there are certain scenes in like The Green Zone, the movie with uh, Matt Damon, um, you know, where the poolside stuff. I mean, is that the, for people that are listening, is that the kind of sort of surreal scenery we're talking about? It, it is. Because, so the palace is, you know, this this massive mansion and it's floor to ceiling marble and then the ceilings are like hand carved wood that's been painted um beautiful beautiful palaces and in the back of it was like a big nice pool with a fountain and it, it felt like a resort hmm. so you go to the pool and then there's a, this big grassy area and you'd have like a little uh like a, a little fire that you could sit around when it was cooler and it, people would be swimming in the pool all day and then at, what, at nighttime, that's when, that's when all the beers would be broken out and be like, okay, well, I think I'm going to get wasted today, so I better leave my pistol with this guy. Um, and then the MPs get called and the MPs like shoo us off. And it was like every night there was somebody, people out there that were partying. It was, it was surreal. I mean, it was trying to explain it to people like how you could go from a combat setting to a resort setting within like four miles is, is just like, it blows people's minds. Right. Oh yeah. No. Uh, now, so for the folks that are listening, uh, the area that you guys <clears throat> uh, resided, stayed at, you know, where you operated out of, uh, can you tell them, you know, that was in Baghdad, right? Yeah, so I first are we talking to, are we talking what everybody now knows as the old Saddam Palace area, you know, with all the lush buildings everywhere and the big lakes and everything? Uh so that's right off of the airport. So that was Camp Liberty. We were in the green zone, uh, which was his primary palace in Baghdad, right on the river. And there were the lush buildings, but it was more the government center than it was like the private residence for Saddam Hussein. Okay. Um, so it was like where the crosswords were. Um, that palace became the U S embassy. And then we had, <laughs> we had this nasty, negative, like disgusting tent that we would sleep in until they built out our, our little barracks area. And then when the really lucky ones, myself included, got there early enough to get a room right behind the pool. So once it got done, I'd go take a shower and just walk over to the pool and, you know, start drinking or just start messing around. And, oh, it was like think of think of the best trained most highly lethal people that you've ever met in your life with a 12 year old mentality and that's what it was there was just a bunch of guys sitting around in a campfire you know telling one up stories and and you know machismo and who's going to try to go over there and bang that army chick or i mean fight it was just it was just mayhem I, that's why i that's why i put mayhem in the title of my book it was just there well, just no rules. Yeah, on the on the front cover, you've got um, mercenaries, money, and mayhem in Iraq, and uh, that pretty much sums up, uh, you know, what a lot of people conjure up 
the stuff that's been conjured up and, and put out there uh, about contracting, uh, especially in the early days and, and probably why so many people it's misunderstood and why they have such a wide divergent set of views about us, but most it's negative. Um, and, and you're saying that, and, and I don't pronounce it as much or articulate it as well as some people do, but I mean, that's not an unfair um, um, way of putting it. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, we're talking combat war zone area. I mean, you know, um, there's a lot of stuff going on and uh, it's kind of hard to be a gentleman and wear a three piece suit when you're in that setting. Right. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so, uh, so the folks that are listening, um, can you describe to them, uh, based on your book and your experiences, what was a tip? Was there a typical day? And if so, what was it like, or have you already said it? Yeah. So, well, so every day, I mean, it, it becomes mundane, right? You, you get to a point where it's, it's mundane. You're, you're running to some of the same areas, uh, you know, the ministry of interior, the ministry of minerals. Um, so a typical day is usually you you get up and then grab some breakfast, figure out you'd have your mission brief the night prior. And then we jump in our suburbans or our Humvees, and then we would drive to a ministry building. And once we were done there, uh, the diplomats would usually stay there about two to three hours. And then we would drive back to the green zone. And then it was just kind of like the, the rest was, was up to us. And some days you would, you would do when I was on the QRF, we would do eight to 10 runs a day. And when I was on the, uh, just a regular team with the regime crimes liaison office. We we might do a run a day, and we might do no runs for three or four days. It just really depended on on who needed to go where. And, and what I noticed happening is when we first got there, there was a lot of missions because and they were always wanting to get out there. They were trying to help rebuild the country. Their hearts were like right in the right spot. And then as it, as it drug on, uh, the missions decreased substantially where, where people weren't wanting to go out there uh, and risk their lives for the Ministry of Minerals so that we could figure out, you know, who's, who's stealing the oil money. And, and you saw the government agencies reduce the number of missions that we were doing. And it was just dependent on them. You could, when Negroponte was there, he was running almost he wasn't going anywhere if he wasn't on a helicopter for the most part. Hmm. Um, when Khalil Zod came in, he was running every day because he said that he's going to be the face of America and he was going to go out there and, and into the city every day of the week. And he did. Hmm. So, <clears throat> you know, we've, uh, you know, <clears throat> I'm fond of saying that uh, <clears throat> in private security, whether it's overseas or here in the States um, in, in probably a lot of other places around the world, um, a lot of the stuff that dictates whether it's the missions, the, the temple, whatever is really driven and dictated by the client. Oh, yeah. Um, so, you know, effectively that's what you were saying. So these people that were coming up, you know, they, they want to slow things down or they want to do things different. I mean, how much say did Blackwater or the guys you were with, how much say, if any, did you guys have in, in the day-to-day -day missions or planning or anything? So they would give us the, the mission and the location and then we did all the planning for it. Hmm. So they would say, I want to go to the ministry of oil or I'd want to go to JSS justice or, or, you know, down to Al Hilla. 
And then once we got that mission, we would come back, the team leader and the um, tactical commander would plan out the mission. We'd say, look, based on them need to be here at 10, we need to leave at this time. And then it was all big boy rules from there. So we'd have a team meeting. They'd say, this is our route. This is our secondary route. Uh, you guys need to be ready to rock and roll at 930. And that meant driving away. It wasn't like the army where you sat there and four hours before the mission, you're touching each other. Oh, do you have, do you have enough water? No, no, like big, big boy time here. Um, and you just go out there and you'd roll. And then once you were done for the day, you were just done for the day, mm. especially around like Christmas, uh, Thanksgiving, everything would just slow way down. Mm. And then uh, during the elections, I was there for a couple of them. Uh, it, it would, it would bump back up. So we, they just told us what to do and we executed it. Okay. So, and, and because we're talking private here, we're talking, you know, private contract. We're, we're uh, and what I mean by that, you know, is the civilians. We're not in the military anymore. And the guys we're talking about are no, they may have been just previously, but now we're all civilians. So we operate on quote unquote, different, uh, different set of rules, different circumstances. So the military might be out there on a high tempo um, out there all the time, but we're not, you're not right. That's driven by state department, whoever, whether it's the RSO they're on the ground or the ambassador or whoever, right? Correct. Yeah. So in, in, and that was part of the, um, that was, that was part of the problems that we ran into. Um, and, and I think from a military perspective, this is why private contractors got a bad reputation is, um, they had no idea where we were going to be, when we were going, how we were getting there. Like we, we didn't have to go through the process of letting the um, AO owner actually know where we were going to be. So we would just be driving along and then we'd run into a military convoy and we'd say, ah, well, whatever, we're going to go around them. And then they'd be all pissed off that we're going around them. And like, it, it, I mean, it was just, it, when I went back as an army officer, if, if I would have had private security in my AO as an intelligence officer, it would have driven me crazy hmm. because we'd go out there and we'd smash into a car and then they'd go over to the closest army base and say, Hey, somebody smashed my car. And the army would say, uh, who were they? And they'd be like, uh, you guys are all Americans. So I don't care who it was. Give me a new car. Um, so there was not enough coordination. There was not enough planning for the war. And where we really shot ourselves in the foot is we went from being a DOD mission in 04 to a Department of State mission. And nary the two should talk. So you have an active combat zone, but theoretically everything is now a diplomatic mission because Iraq got their sovereignty. And without having that coordination at a higher level, there was no way we were going to have the coordination at the lower level. Right. You know, and, and that, that's uh, that was a, that was a topic for lack of a better term topic of discussion. That's it's probably still a topic of discussion. I mean, guys that I know that are still over there for various entities, you know, they say there's still not an awful lot of that, you know? Um, and, and I remember when I was there, uh, you know, it became pretty clear that DOS and DOD really didn't like each other. <laughs> they played, but they didn't play well. Um, so, you know, that, that causes issues, correct? Oh, a hundred percent. They, and, and then, and then you start throwing in the other agencies, USAID, and you have, uh, all the other OGA, CIA, DIA, NSA, all these people that are doing something. And there's no way to be able to coordinate it all effectively 
but I also don't think that there was a whole lot of trying to coordinate it either. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think you know, everybody, it, everybody wanted to be like the, the, the agency that was winning the war and, it, uh, it, it, and then we ended up losing it anyway. So, Hey, so when, when you were, so when you were there for those 18 months, uh, went shortly after this whole thing began, uh, what was the sense you got when you're, when you're running around doing your stuff? What did you get the feeling that, um, outside your bubble of the DOS people that you dealt with and the, and the company people that you worked with, did it, did you get the sense that anybody was really watching, listening, that they really care? I mean, you were all out there doing your own thing. And I mean, that's kind of what it looks like the picture you're drawing. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I mean, they, they may have cared, but they only cared in hindsight when something bad would happen. Mm. <laughs> if, if that makes sense. Okay. Well, there was a lot going on then. I mean, it, it was, I mean, it's always chaotic regardless of the time, uh, the year we pick, you can, pick the year but but those first few years were especially chaotic and uh you know so you know that that's to be expected and uh you know so so your typical day once once you finish with your typical day i mean was, was that pretty much i mean was that the day that you drew out just a little bit ago was that the same thing that you saw for 18 months i mean did it did it change it was just you know what was that uh Combat uh, Groundhog Day every day? <laughs> uh, no, so it, it depended on your mission. So usually when you first get there, they put you on a team and then you kind of did, you know, like the bitch work. Whoever, whoever needed something, all of a sudden it was like, oh, yeah, go use that team. And then you got hooked into a mission and that's when we got hooked into like the regime crimes liaison team. And from there, it would kind of get stabilized and get towards that Groundhog's Day thing. And then contractors would leave after three months or six months and they come back and you're on a different team that's got mm. a different mission that's supporting a different diplomat for a different ministry. Um, so it, it, it would change pretty regularly uh, where we started in Baghdad and then they sent our team up to Sulaymaniyah, which is in Kurdistan, so north of Kirkuk. And it's the Kurds. And they, they put us up in a hotel up there and we were just going from like village to village to village, collecting evidence uh, against chemical Ali and Saddam Hussein. So we'd go in there and our principal would talk to the village elder. The village elder would explain, hey, come on over here. I'll show you where it happened. And they'd walk him over to a wall and there's all these bullet holes in the wall. And they would say, this is where they lined up all the military aged males and shot them. And then this is where the mass grave was. And then so they would collect all that that. Um, they, they would get all the, like the statements and then they would back that up with the different, digging up different mass graves. Uh, we went to Halabja where they gassed the Kurds in 1988 mm. um, with mustard gas. Like they killed anywhere between 3,000 and 8,000 men, women, and children. Um, so it, like, it was very, it was very sobering um, to, to, to be a part of that. And then when some of the evidence that we were, helping with would make it to the news. It was like, wow, that's like, like, that's cool. Like we actually are doing something that that's helping as opposed to just coming over here and making a bunch of money. Um, but that I've run into a lot of um, pushback on the fact that I put that I put mercenary on the front of the book. And my retort is I could have raised my hand and went back over there as an E5, but I went there for the money. And then I finally got to a point that, um, I just didn't, the people didn't care 
nearly as much about their country as we did. Mm. And that's where I got to a point where it was like, look, I'm, I'm just here for the cash. I'm huh. here for me. I'm done with this. We had um, seven contractors die April 21st, 2005. Uh, I had a couple of buddies that, that went down in the bird. And then we had another guy um, get killed on his way in from Ramadi. And you just, you realize that we were just completely expendable. The, mm. the State Department, the State Department didn't give two craps about us. It wasn't getting into the news that Americans died. You know, it was just contractors. It, it wasn't as bad as when soldiers were, were dying. And I felt like a, like a, like a Starbucks cup. <laughs> like they, would, they would drink all the coffee they wanted, and then they would throw you in the garbage the second, the second that you did something that they didn't like or, or they needed a scapegoat. We were just really easy scapegoats. Um, so when people ask me, how would you get into private security? I say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it again. I was young. I was single. I was 23. The money was good. Uh, but you, you are an expendable. You are, you are a contractor. You are a civilian. You are essentially in my head, a mercenary. Right. Well, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because those things you just mentioned come up uh, frequently in conversations with, with other guys. Um, you know, that, uh, a lot of us start out, eh, I guess the, the correct term would be idealistic to some extent when we go over there, our first one. Um, and then at some point you become a little hardened, maybe a little jaded, um, you know, to the point where, like you're saying, a lot of guys just say, you know what, man, uh, I am here just for the money now at this point, because they start to realize an awful lot of what you're saying. They experience those sorts of things and just say, <laughs> Um, but you know, those issues, you know, that we are expendable, um, we are, you know, and, and talk with guys about, you know, wanting to develop a contractor's association, um, there's really little support, uh, speaking of which, so, um, can you, from your perspective, your experiences there, uh, in terms of support at the company level, uh, cause it's not, cause you probably got very little from the state department and other government agencies would be my guess. Uh, you can expound on any or all of that you want. What was the support like for you guys, uh, from the company at the ground level? Did you guys feel like you were taken care of or, or, or did you have to count on the guy to your left and right? Oh, it was just us. Uh, it was us and the little birds and the QRF essentially. So, uh, from, from a support perspective, Blackwater was, I would say, quite a bit better than most of the other companies out hmm. there that, I mean, they, do you remember Custer's battles? Yeah. And there was like, there were just these people that there were three people. They started a company, got a multimillion dollar contract and like just went over there and bought Toyotas and drove around. Uh, Blackwater always supported us. The state department always had um, the right vehicles for the most part hmm. to be able to do your job at the right places. Um, but once you went outside that wire, it was just you. And, right. and we knew that it was you and it was the, the dude next to you. And if, if something happened, you could call it in, you could call in the little birds um, for support. You could call in the QRF, but we didn't have big army on standby. You know, it, it right. was not, it was not like, Oh, don't worry. We'll be there within X amount of minutes. And you just call this number. It was like, no, you, you just get your ass back home if you can. <laughs> there was no Batman button, was there? <laughs> and no, there was, there was, there was no, there was definitely no like magic button to push. Right. Um, right. 
So you mentioned uh, earlier, you mentioned uh, climbing in and out of uh, Humvees or Hummers uh, on a lot of your missions, because uh, a lot of people think of, uh, you know, people that haven't been there or ha- don't really understand. They've seen it in the movies, the, the videos, whatever. They see everybody running around, like you're saying, Toyotas. They see them running around in sub suburbs, suburbans, you know, yeah. I mean, those sorts of vehicles. Uh, so when you were over there, I mean... Uh, at what point did you guys start transitioning or when did you start using those or the mix of them? Um, can you hearken to some of that stuff? Yeah. So uh, if you were on just a normal regular team, like when I started on, on team 12, um, you got Suburbans for the most part, there were some Suburbans that were retrofitted and then there were some where the actual armor was built into uh, the, the body of the Suburban. And we had two Humvees. Uh, for our QRF. And I don't know how we got these things, uh, Hmm. but they were, we would take them over to the welding shop, put big bumpers on them. They were just, they were just big beasts of a machine. (laughs) And then we had, we had the QRF kind of started as a QRF and then turned into almost an escort service, but not in a sexy way. Not Hmm. like somebody's going to come in and take your pants off escort. Like they're going to, they're going to put a Humvee in front of the convoy, uh, drive you out to that building. And then there was a follow Humvee and then the QRF we would leave, we'd go to a different location, pick somebody up, drop them off. So, so when I was saying we do eight, 10 runs a day, we were just always back and forth uh, throughout the city as a, as a QRF. But the vast majority of them were Suburbans, $250,000 up armored Suburbans. Hmm. Well, I guess they're not up armored, but armored Suburbans. And we must have wrecked those things every day. It was just like taking, it was writing a $250,000 check and throwing it in the garbage because I smashed one. I got smashed into by one. Um, like the money that was going through that place was crazy because we smashed through one and they'd be, Oh, just go pick up this other one. I'll go grab this. So, um, the, the Humvees ended up getting replaced with the Mambas, I believe kind of the MRAP. Mm, okay. Type, type vehicle later. Um, and, and that was because we smashed into a bongo truck with our Humvee and bent the frame. That's how, that's how hard we hit. Wow. Um, and it was, it was decommissioned. And that is actually when I went from uh, Baghdad up to Kirkuk, because like I said earlier, the state department said, Oh, whoever took all the armor off of that Humvee, they're fired. And I was like, that was our armor. I like, we traded, we traded big army booze for armor. Like you go over there with a bottle of Jack Daniels. Up armor magically appears on your Humvee when you pick it up the next day. It's beautiful. Um, but a KBR contractor got all mad and said I was stealing his gear, me and my buddy. And they, instead of firing us, they said, ah, you know, State Department doesn't really track it. And you guys have your clearance. So just go up to Kirkuk and then you can hang out up there. Right. And I was like, all right. So I went from, I went from Baghdad up to Kirkuk uh, and nobody was the wiser. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, the things you, yeah, the things that go on um, that, you know, we know, but what you're talking about, I mean, sometimes that's just what has to be done the way it has to be done because there's no other way to get it done uh, through normal channels for a variety of reasons. Right. I'm well, you know, let's just be honest. Uh, So, uh, but did you feel better at, did you, which one did you appreciate more the, the Hummer or the, or the armored suburban? So the armored Suburban had a much better air conditioning system in it. Okay. So I really did appreciate that one. <laughs> uh, and then we would take out the back seat 
we'd flip it backwards and you'd have uh, people sitting on either side of it so they could open their door and then you could, you could put your rifle out and then, you know, close your door up real quick. Um, so, so the, the Suburbans were much nicer, better vehicles, but you can't move traffic in a Hummer or in, in a Suburban like you can with a big Hummer huh. and the AC unit was terrible and it was disgusting in there and it just you'd sweat your ass off on every run but we ran with our windows down our guns out like mm. a dog with his head out the window <laughs> and it, it, but it, it allowed us to kind of like get people to move when we needed to and you just you can't do that i don't know what it was about those people that the code of Hammurabi was created in Babel, which is modern day Al Hilla. And I don't know what happened from then until 2004, but there are no laws. There are no traffic laws in Iraq. <laughs> they, just, they just drive around aimlessly and you can't get them out of the way and you're honking at them and you're throwing water bottles at them and you're throwing rocks at them. And then you got to bump them with the car and then you, you even bump them and they're like, oh, what's going on? What are you, what are you, oh, you mean me? You mean, yes, yes, you. With your orange and white hunk of crap sedan, get out of my way. It's 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 humorous to me, and uh, you know it's easier for us to laugh about it. You know, having been there, and I and and I don't I try to explain it. I don't know why I still do to people, but you know, it, it's kind of like imagine your worst traffic jam downtown core proper area of your major metropolitan. Pick the one, and you're trying to get. A to where you're going to be on time and C um, in, in as safe a manner as you can you, so that, you know, you, you don't have to worry about somebody popping out a door and, and doing something. Uh, but you don't want to get stuck. You don't want to, you don't want to get in a traffic jam. Um, I said, now, now apply the fact that you're in a war setting. I said, <laughs> you know, I said, that's why we're doing the guys do what they do, you know, because these people aren't paying attention. They don't care. And, and you mentioned earlier about you at some point fairly early on that the, the general populace in Iraq almost didn't care anymore. Um, can, can, can you expound on that? You know, how that played into all this? Yeah. So I, I <laughs> the best story is uh, when I first got over there, um, we were driving and there was like this little boy on the side of the road and they're all waving um, and then I would say like four months later, I was driving down a similar road and like a similar aged boy sat there and acted like he had a shotgun and he was shooting at us. Right. Like they, they, mm. they wanted freedom at the lowest levels. Mm. They wanted democracy. And this is just my opinion, but there was a desire for it. And, but you're not working at the lowest level. You're not sitting there working with the people you're working with the new Iraqi leadership and they just want a piece of the pie. Hmm. They want the money. They want the contracts. They want the prestige. They want all that stuff because, because that's, it, it was a power struggle. Hmm. So what happened was, is the people at the top were not doing right by the people at the bottom. And we were, we were an easy target, both contractors and the U S military to have them say, look, this was better under a dictator than it was under you. Hmm. So I think the people especially up north the people like in kurdistan really really they loved us they wanted it um but when you started going south of kirkuk uh it just it, 
it, it never filtered down the money. I mean, the trillions of dollars that we spent over there um, trying to set up a parliament, it just, it, it never helped the people. And, and they, they took that out on us. I mean, right. So did, do you, did you get the sense then, or do you now that um, the general populace on, as a whole um, wanted us there, looked upon us favorably, and if so, for how long? And at what point did it change, and why did it change? And, and uh, you know, can, can you hearken on that? Oh, I can pontificate about that for, for <laughs> hours if you want. But I guess the, uh, the short story is during the ground offensive, um, I believe that there was a desire to, to, to rid themselves of a dictator. And then somewhere around late 04, um, what started happening is you had the Shia like murder squads that were going around Baghdad. And they were really, so Saddam Hussein was a Sunni. And the Shias were like, look, we're taking back everything that he gave to his chosen sect. And they had murder squads and there's been thousands of documentaries on this probably where uh, the Sunnis and the Shias, they used to live together and then they started going to different schools and they started moving to different locations uh, for protection. And then what happened is you had the Sunnis move all the way west to the Sunni triangle, Fallujah, Ramadi, uh, and the Shias predominantly in like your, your large metropolitan areas. And they finally just got to a point that all that sectarian anger and mm. frustration that happened under Saddam boiled up to the top somewhere around mid 2004. Mm. And that's when you started seeing the Kurds get, you know, more, more closely aligned up North, the Sunnis moving a lot more West, the Shias really trying to dominate the government um, because they, they are the largest population there. So, mm. I, I don't know what the answer is, but um, in, in one, somewhere in my, the only thing I can think of is that nobody cared when Saddam Hussein was threatening to birch, like, beat you with a, with a power cable, right? Hmm. They didn't care if you were Sunni or Shia, um, but as soon as we went in there, uh, we didn't take that into consideration, and they, they created a civil war based on it, and, and I don't know that I blame them. They've been... <clears throat> The, the minority had ruled with an iron fist for 30, 40 years, and they wanted their piece of the pie. And people say disbanding the military is the worst thing that we could have done. I actually disagree with that. I think um, the worst thing that we did is we said, if Saddam Hussein took something from you as a Shia or as a Kurd, you are entitled to get that back. So the Kurds decided that they wanted Kirkuk back and they wanted their oil field because Saddam Hussein had, had done bathification. He sent mm. a bunch of Sunnis up there. And it's the same thing for Baghdad. The Shias said, hey, we used to have all this stuff. The Americans said we can have it back. Get the fuck out of my house. Excuse my language. But get out of my house. I owned that 50 years ago. And then they'll just, and then you've been in that same house for 50 years. Are you going to give that thing up? You're not. Mm. So go grab your guns. Let's rock and roll. <laughs> right. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, those are probably not dissimilar uh, sorts of reactions that most people would have, including Americans. Um, you know, it, it, whether it's your job, your house, your property, whatever, somebody takes it from you, you want it back. Um, but that's, a, that's an interesting sentiment because I, I, I mean, 
I recollect something similar from my time of travels over there that what you're saying that, that at the top level, it was a whole different kind of mindset than the guys down at the bottom, the guys and gals that were just, you know, for lack of a better term, just trying to get along, um, yeah. trying to have some sort of semblance of normalcy in their life. Uh, whereas the people at the top did seem, you know, and, and but that's, that seemed to go pretty deep in their culture though, in terms of the, uh, the status symbol, you know, um, you know, uh, they call it respect, you know, and that, but it, it, it is a different, definitely a caste system. Um, and uh, we, you know, but I mean that, 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 uh, so private security contractors getting in there. Do you think while you were there, did you see them responding differently to you guys? And they responded to say the guys that were in the military uniforms. Did, did you notice that? So I didn't notice it personally, but I had a friend out in Ramadi and they essentially said that the people of Ramadi felt mm. that the contractors were terrorists and the U.S. military that was there wasn't so bad. So they were always being targeted mm. because they, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they weren't being terribly nice and I'm sure they were, they were doing exactly what their mission told them to do, but not in the, the sweetest way possible. Right. Um, but yeah, I think it, it slowly started getting to a point that the local populace understood who was a contractor and who was military, and they would definitely be able to differentiate between those two on, on how they wanted to, um, reach out and, and touch them. <laughs> so, you know, speaking of which, uh, did, was there a time ever as a contractor over there, uh, that you felt, <clears throat> um, less secure or less safe as a contractor than you would if you were doing the same thing at the same time, if you were in a military uniform? Oh, every day. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was just how you operated. You, you knew that it, it, and it goes back to that support. You knew that there was not support for you. Hmm. So the way that you acted and reacted was going to be more, um, I would say positive, more, 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 kinetic than you would have if you were in the military when you know that you've got that 50 cal that can start laying down some hate if you need it uh where, where you've got a, like a big reserve force that can come help you out so it coupled that with we were told we had diplomatic immunity so if something happened um just don't worry about it the first thing we'll do is send you home and then it'll all kind of wash over hmm. and that turned out not to be the case later on right so every day was just you you knew that nobody was coming for you except your buddies that you were sitting right. there drinking beer with at the pool so i guess uh, don't be an asshole <laughs> <laughs> pays to have friends right yeah exactly <laughs> well you know it's interesting you mentioned diplomatic immunity um we uh, that became later known uh, i don't know if people know about it so much anymore but what we called the sofa the uh, sofa agreement uh, yeah. that's what you're talking about uh, and that, and I remember that was some level of comfort, uh, you know, large or small, but it was, you know, it was there. Uh, but that didn't last forever. That, that went away, uh, about the time that you went back over in, in, you know, what about Oh nine, uh, pretty much. Um, how did that affect, uh, you know, what you saw and you experienced? I mean, when, when that disappeared, when, when the sofa was no longer a material document that we could count on. I mean, so once it started going away, uh, it, it, and this played out in history. So I was an intel officer in the army. 
uh, when I went back over and it was just a waiting game. Everybody was just waiting for the, for the U S to leave. And mm. I was stuck. I got stuck there for the whole year and all the combat troops were pulled out within like eight, nine months of our rotation because I was support and they were mm. combat troops. Um, and, and as soon as we left, that's when you saw ISIS take over Mosul, right? Mm. Like that, that's when you started seeing the large insurgency being able to, to come in and take over and own land. And, and I don't think there was a change based on the SOFA agreement that was the catalyst. I think everybody was just biding their time and it didn't make sense to fight the Americans when you knew they were leaving. Why would you, why, why would you go out and, you know, if you're, if you're, dad's drunk and out on the front porch, but he's getting ready to get a ride home. Don't go out there and, and start yelling at him. You're going to get punched in the face, right? <laughs> Same concept. Yeah. You know, now that you mentioned that, I, I do kind of remember that. Um, and I think there was some of that going on in some news stories that were, you know, when they were debating back and forth that that was, you know, that they were having a, let's just wait it out uh, kind of mentality about that whole thing. Um, so you mentioned QRF. Uh, can you explain to the folks what the difference is, if there's a difference between QRF at the military level and QRF at the private level, what you did, um, how does that differ um, in terms of support, reaction, all of it? Yeah, so from a military perspective, every time you're planning a mission, uh, you have to over plan the mission. You just have to do ad nauseum. Um, <laughs> poor military bastards, uh, myself included in that. But there's always, if you're going to run a mission and you're going to go to a certain place at a certain time, then you have to have your primary force that's going to go out. There's usually a secondary force that would go out and secure the area so that the primary force can go in. And then there's a quick response force just in case everything goes bad and they're able to get off the base and react as quickly as possible if, if they do find themselves in a, in a combat situation. And you see this in the movies, uh, like you, you see it in um, a Black Hawk Down movie where they got pinned down, they got stuck there overnight, and then the QRF came out the next day. Uh, you see it in the Chris Kyle movie where he, he takes that shot, and then the next thing you know, like they're, they're sending the QRF out because now they're in a, a bad combat situation. You have to get as many troops as possible to the objective, to, to get your people out of it. Uh, right. From, so at the military level, they've got this set group of guys that that's their mission. I mean, morning, noon, night, uh, you know, and, and I don't mean literally sitting around the dinner table, although it might be, uh, but that's what they're waiting for. Uh, but at the private level, is it same, similar for the folks that are listening? How does it differ? So, well, it's similar in that you would have somebody that was on standby that could come out and help. Uh, it's dissimilar in that you don't have a large, overwhelming force that can help. It was two, <laughs> two Humvees in a Suburban. Um, so, so it was, and usually there would be a standby team. So if everybody had Friday off, there'd be a team on standby that could either run a mission or uh, have, have a second team that could go help another team. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't have told you where these other teams were going or where they were going to be. So on the days that we were QRF, the, the standby team, um, it was like, Hey, have your radios on and we'll call you. And then mm. thankfully we, we didn't really get called. Uh, but it was just like, Hey, make sure that you can be here within 15 minutes and ready to roll. 
Huh. So no, no getting drunk at the pool. Um, make sure you have your pants on. So do you think that was uh, in part because of, uh, you know, that, that uh, operational security thing going on where if you didn't have a need to know, you didn't need to know. And so you didn't, or did it, was it something a little bit more than that? It was um, people and agencies not wanting to um, advertise or, or work well with others, or was it just so chaotic? There was just so much going on. It was impossible to make it all cohesive. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't have told you where another team was uh, at, at any given time because there was no way for me as just a regular old window licker uh, to know where, where a different team was going to be. I was lucky if I knew where we were going. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it, it, it was, I would say, I would lean towards it was too chaotic. And I, I, we did start tracking um, our different convoys and the different time frames. Uh, quite a bit better towards the end of 04 and into 05, but we didn't have blue force trackers. We didn't have something that said, Hey, you know, Morgan's at the ministry of interior. And then, you know, John's team is over at the ministry of oil. We just, you, it was, it was big boy rules. You, you were there to do a job. And if something happened, like get your ass to the closest base you could. Right. So that was, and that was going to be my next question because uh, you had mentioned earlier about, you know, the GPS stuff in the early days, um, you know, cause out there in the desert environment, even in the cities, um, in the, in the region we're talking about, uh, communications were, are not as ubiquitous as they are here in America or perhaps in other places like Western Europe or, uh, Canada. I mean, you know, so navigating, communicating, those sorts of things takes quite a bit of infrastructure and a lot of logistics support, including um, uh, probably, especially in the early days, a lot of satellite communications. So, and you guys didn't, and the technology wasn't there for, for tracking. So, I mean, so that all added to uh, the chaos and, and, you know, uh, just, you know, we're the, you know, there might be 50 teams out here, but we're the only one we see, right? Well, and, and, and contractors weren't going to be the priority anyway. So when I got back in 09, we had the Blue Force tracker system that actually had the map on it. And then it would say, here's, here's somebody, here's somebody, here's somebody, here's a helicopter. And you'd be able to know exactly where people were within the military units that were using it. Uh, as far as contractors went, I, I don't know if they ever, they gave us Blue Force trackers, but they were like four buttons. And you'd push a button when you left. And then when you got somewhere, you'd, you're supposed to push a button. And I was like, but how the hell do you have any idea? Like what, what this means? Like, this makes no sense. <laughs> then if you went from the first players, the first place to a second place, you had to push the second button and then the third. And we just, we just turned those things off, man. They were, they were, <laughs> they were more hassle than we could figure out. Yeah. Well, and you hearken to something that, uh, you know, we, we often use, uh, and you hear this a lot over there, the, the kiss method and keeping things simple and what you're talking about all these things that a lot of times that somebody wants us to put into play just really complicates and sometimes overcomplicates and puts too much too many processes and steps we have to go through that it just uh like you're saying sometimes it's just look we're starting here we're gonna end here uh we'll call you when we get there (laughs) you know and if if, if there's a, if there's a checkpoint or something that uh, popped up overnight, or if there was a VBID and there's a big hole in the, in the road, like, we'll we'll go around it. We'll figure it out. Right. Well, speaking of which, so, you know, the time you were there uh, with Blackwater, you know, what can you um, 
visual, visually describe to people uh, maybe some of what those things were like when you're outside off the base, you know, and you're out there uh, morning, noon, or night. I mean, you know, everybody, not everybody, but some guys have their, some guys would say, you know, I'd rather do it at night because, and they give you all kinds of reasons. And, you know, but the standard was, no, nah, I, I think I'll do daytime. <laughs> Yeah, at least at least I can figure out uh, where the nearest base is uh, right. when I when I wreck my two hundred fifty thousand dollars suburban. Um, so every vehicle was a VBID. That's that was the mentality that we had, uh, hmm. or at least that I had. I, I don't want to speak for everybody, but uh, that they were all the rage. VBIDs coming to the gate, blowing up gates. We had there were a, a lot uh, of them. oh yeah, and and we had a we had a garbage truck VBID go off uh, on, on the near the North gate, which I wasn't even that close to. And it shook my guts. I mean, mm -hmm. it was so, so when you're running around with, you know, the ambassador or somebody that's really important, uh, you, you don't sit there and go, Oh, I wonder if that car is a VBID. You say every car is a VBID, get them away. Like keep, keep them as far away from us as, as absolutely possible. And then they give you these things like, check the back tires to see if the tires are flatter in the back because that's where they would have all most of their explosives and and if the back springs are lower than the front springs and i'm like these cars were built in 1973 they haven't been maintained since 1973 and you're gonna like i'm supposed to figure out if it's bad springs or if it's like 500 pounds of explosives you guys are ridiculous so yeah. it, it was it was it was just a protect yourself thing and it, huh. Well, I mean, I, I can understand because, you know, some, I mean, those were what we called signs and indicators, things you might yeah. be on the lookout for, um, but, you know, and some of the smarter ones, I remember, you know, hearing about this and, and, you know, I think we came across some of it, you know, it's like some of the smarter ones that maybe had a little bit more time, a little bit more money, better infrastructure, knew those things. And so they worked around it. They just beefed up the suspension, you know, yeah. <laughs> or they, or they used that vehicle as a distraction method to get the one through that they wanted that you weren't paying attention to because it looked fine. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I mean, we we didn't have the same intelligence reporting uh, that that they do now, and and even if we did, I don't know that we cared. We yeah. weren't going to the talk every day to figure out like where, well, where was that mortar? Whatever and that mortar, it hit close enough to me to where you know I I put my pants on and went to a bunker. Uh, but other than that, like it. it it, it didn't even occur to me that, I mean, I was young too. So it didn't right. occur to me that I needed to have this big battle space idea. And, and it, I was talking to a buddy the other day. I don't remember what, I don't remember ever hearing a strategic mission out of anybody when hmm. I worked for Blackwater or the military for that matter. Like, what are we going to do? Yes, we're going to take Fallujah. What's the strategy afterwards? What, what are we going to do after that? How are we going to, in, especially in 0405, I don't think there, there was an overarching strategy and I'm sure that there was somewhere, but it sure as heck didn't get down to, to the guys on, on the ground. Hmm. Well, yeah. And you had mentioned earlier that, you know, you, you know, that at some point you, you realize you, as a contractor, you're just there for the, I'm, I'm here for the money guys. You know, I'll, I'll do my job. Everybody knows I can do my job. We'll do the job. We all, we all come out the other side uh, smelling like roses. Um, did, so that was, I guess, you know, what I'm trying to trick, articulate here is that what you're saying is that there, that was a point sh fairly shortly after you arrived as a contractor 
you just realize that this isn't what is being fed to the people around the world via the mainstream media they're not giving them the full story they're not giving them the reality of what's really going on and um you know you know so in blackwater was still I mean, they didn't really start getting beat up until what, about 2006, 2007? Prior to that, they were considered a pretty much a darling. Is that right? Yeah. So all four, we had the contractors that were hanged from the bridge. So that's when everybody said, holy cow, there's actually private security contractors there. And uh, that's when Blackwater kind of got into the public consciousness. And then 06, because I, I left at the end of 05. Uh, 06, I was starting to hear some chirping about Blackwater. And of course, everybody was Blackwater, even though they were dying core and there was triple canopy. And, but everybody was Blackwater and they were all, you know, terrible. And then um, they, their reputation took a huge hit in like 07. And, and that's when they started losing a lot of those contracts. Now, you're talking about the Nasir Square incident, right? In yeah. 07? Yeah. Yeah. And that one that happened earlier, um, that I think was also, there were some Blackwater you talk about the Blackwater guys that, that, that were, uh, or there was another team. I think it was a different company that was, you talk about that was hung from the bridge that the Marines went in there and, and beat it up for about a week until the public outrage said, Hey, we can't do that anymore. Yeah, no. So those were Blackwater guys uh, also. So that was, that was Oh four. That's okay. what I, that's when I learned about Blackwater. I, okay. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. I remember uh, for a long time, even to this point, occasionally people say oh blackwater no <laughs> i said i did some training there but <laughs> yeah <know>. no <laughs> oh well you know yeah so that, that yeah um well that's so, why i wrote the book too is is i the the negative connotation i i think it was deserved uh to a certain extent hmm. but it's not like everybody that worked for enron were assholes and getting ready to right. steal your retirement, right? Like, like Blackwater had some good. We had some bad. We did some good. We did some bad. And it was really just about the people on the ground doing what we were told to do and how we were told to do it. Right. So, I mean, like any organization, private or public, um, I mean, there does come a point where, you know, you got to do what you're told to do. And if you don't like it, if it bothers you that much, then here's your ticket. Go home. We'll get somebody else, right? Right. Um, so, so the the culture or the mentality and all the other stuff that's going on, we're talking about. That's the stuff that's really that trickle down theory. It starts at the top, and you guys kind of you know get it like the waterfall hitting you on the head, right? And <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, so you know, as so Blackwater was also one of the things they were known for was, was their training camps uh, or training facilities, I should say. Um, how do you think that your training in the military, your training in Blackwater, uh, one was better than the other? It prepared you for what you did and what you saw and what you had to do. Um, you had to go in there with a skill set, and then once you got there, their training was the standard for the State Department. But I don't think either one of them really trained you for for exactly what you were going to do on a daily basis. Hmm. You, you, that was that was on the job training in Baghdad, Iraq. Huh. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. I remember, I know one buddy of mine, I think he's still over there actually. It's like, damn dude, when are you going to quit this stuff? Um, you know, some guys just can't, uh, for a variety of reasons, but, uh, um, you know, it, but he's saying that it, it's still the same old thing. He said, it hasn't changed. He said everything. He said, you know, the only difference is that, you know, the party type atmosphere you're talking about 
is gone. But other yeah. than that, it's, it's, you know, it's basically the same, the same stuff we've been seeing since it all started. He said, it's never changed. And, and other guys are saying the same thing. It's like, you know, and, and they are, they are there. They have been there uh, since at least 09 or 10, maybe a little, some guys, you know, didn't really decide that it's money only anymore until 11 or 12. But, you know, at some point that's what it comes down to because you realize as you've stated um, it's like, what's this all about? What's it for? Does anybody really know what's going on? And nobody could really articulate it really well. Could they there? I mean, there was a lot of interests over there and there still are. I mean, get what you can while you can. But I, I tell people that it, a, the money's not nearly as good as it was. Right. B you're still a scapegoat and C there's still no real support for private security contractors uh, when it comes to like running your missions and there it's, I don't think the risk is worth the reward. So if you're a young, single 23, 25 year old male and you want to go over there and do it, have at it. But if you're married, I mean, I watch so many, so many people ruin relationships over there trying to, you know, just do one more contract. Mm. Um, a lot of people run into problems with the IRS because uh, they weren't paying their taxes. It just, mm there there are a lot of trapdoors right. and i would i would i would recommend if you i had a kid that's like 19 years old reach out to me and he's like well i want to go in and do special forces and then i want to be a private security contractor and i said no you want to go to college and get your engineering degree and make $110,000 a year and not have to go overseas to do it like, that's <laughs> that's what you want to do you don't know it yet that's you know it's interesting but i mean what you're saying is uh, for lack of a better term, I mean, it's absolute truth. And I try to tell that to one of my boys that's uh, in the military, you know, I mean, and, and we used to hear that from our dads, you know, because we look up to them, we idolize them, we glorify this stuff for a variety of reasons. We think, wow, great. That's cool, man. I want to do that too. Uh, and they're saying, well, maybe not, you know, and, and, and they want to tell you the, the, the truth of the matter, but they, they don't want to crush you completely with it either. Um, so I hear what you're saying. It's uh you know, uh, with that, I mean, we, I'd like to go on longer, but uh, I know you don't have an awful lot of time left, probably. Um, for the folks who are listening, we, we um, you know, uh, technology isn't always the nicest thing <laughs> as quirks. So we've had some hiccups, but we made it work. Um, so, um, so I was going to say, so as we um, start to wrap this up, um, A, I'd like to invite you back at some point in the future. Uh, because there's a lot of material we could discuss and talk about more about your book and uh, you know, and your time and experiences and other things as it pertains to contracting. Um, but so with that said, um, do you have, and, and you mentioned a little bit of it already, <clears throat> a takeaway or um, something uh, that, you know, for people to consider and think about whether it's private security contractors uh, the, the skirmishes around the world in the Middle East, anywhere? Oh, see, that's another thing I can pontificate. We can go back to the Iran-Iraq border conflict of the 80 <laughs> to 88 and how, yeah, I mean, I, 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 could, I could get into all that or even back into, uh, you know, World War One when Iraq became a nation, even though it was like three disparate people all stuck together and they said, ah, screw it. That, that'll be a nation. You guys can have it. Uh, gave it to the British. Um, I, I think from a from a private security lens, um, do your homework. 
if you're going to do it stateside, make sure you have the right licenses. Make sure you have everything buttoned up because a lot of companies are great and they will, they will help you out the same way that Blackwater helped us out. Uh, but there's a lot of fly-by-night companies where they'll come in and you won't have the right certifications and, and you're going to be the one, just like that guy in Colorado that shot a, uh, the, the, the protester, you're going to be the one that gets arrested for it. It's not going to be the company. Um, so, so make sure that you're researching the company that you want to work for. Make sure that it, you research the certifications that you, that you may need based on the state, based on the gun laws, based on everything. Mm. Uh, because you, you will be hung out to dry if, if something goes down. Right. Um, and yeah, I, I have to run and grab my kids. That's the, that's the craziest <laughs> adventure of them all. So I, I have to get out, out of here. But um, my website is just welcometoblackwater.com. And Thank you. I was going to ask, we're, we're, for, for folks that are listening that want to buy your book, they, where can they buy it? So if you want it signed and you want me to draw a big old Iraq porta potty cock on it, <laughs> that's my website. It's welcometoblackwater.com. All right. uh, it's also available on Amazon uh, in the Kindle version also. Um, but th those are the only two places to get it unless, unless you come see me at my house. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. And, uh, which, uh, there's probably some people that would, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, Morgan, again, I want to thank you very much for, uh, taking the time out of your day and making this work for me and for us. And, uh, uh, thank you for everything you've done. And, uh, and again, hopefully you'll be willing to come back and do this again and, and we can uh, go further down, deeper down this rabbit hole and, and discuss a lot more stuff. Um, so I want to thank Morgan Lorette for being my guest, taking time to make, uh, share his time and experiences with us on Oconus, the contractor's life. Thank all the patriots and warriors who've done their time and service for this country. Uh, you, the listening audience, for taking time out of your day to listen, because without you, it really doesn't matter. Um, with that said, folks, remember to be careful what you wish for. Stay frosty, stay safe, and until next time, keep it real. Yep, and, and avoid chlamydia. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, take care. Bye. <laughs>